Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, delegates all, to episode 14 of the Delegation Game. Welcome back, dear delegates. It's been two weeks since we last had an episode, so I hope you've enjoyed your break as much as I have. Today's episode involves a lot of introductions, because several of you have elected to change your character in the last fortnight, which is of course allowed within reason, so here are the major changes. Bonifacio Fidel has been swapped for Vittorio Orlando, Paul Limon's has been swapped for the German Chancellor, Philip Scheidemann, and Lorenzo Martelli has been swapped for Indian delegate, Ganja Singh. The votes from the last episode have also passed. Greece has received the blessing of the conference for its landing at Smyrna, as has happened in history, but in the realm of unhistory, Foch's five pillars have been accepted unanimously, which means that hopefully you can all get down to business with creating a proper peace treaty at long last. Something which may help in this matter is the timely arrival of none other than the President Marshall himself in London, where he will finally be able to take his seat alongside the Big Three. Without any further ado then, we've got a lot to delve into today, so I will now take you to the courtyard of the Annabay Hotel, where France's favourite son had just arrived. The tyres scrunched over the gravel as the stately car ploughed ever onward down the driveway. Large oak trees lined the drive and the splendid residence loomed in the distance with spring's final splurge of daffodils on full display. It is not a bad place to remake the world, remarked President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Beside him in the car, Alistair Tankred nodded in agreement. Sir Alistair, Foch began, 
Are you confident that with the successful passage of several agreements over recent days, we will finally be able to create a peace treaty that will stand the test of time? Alistair hesitated. He still had not grown used to the honorific of Sir. In fact, he had returned to London the previous week for a single night, whereupon Britain's best and brightest held a sumptuous ceremony for him. The Order of the Garter was one thing, but to be knighted by the King for his diplomatic service? That was another honour entirely. It was the vindication of his years of study and practice, and it represented perhaps his proudest achievement in life. The honour turned to something akin to gloom, though, once it became apparent that these new titles brought with them added responsibilities and stresses. He hadn't slept properly in a week, thanks to President Marshal Foch's announcement to him a week before that Foch intended to take his rightful place alongside the Big Three to leave Paris behind and wield his considerable influence over the Council of Eight. Foch would be in the same room as Lloyd George, a man whom he had once held at gunpoint. In the name of Anglo-French relations and the peace of the world, Lloyd George had long since disavowed any notions of revenge, but Tancred was nonetheless anxious about the meeting. All it would take was another ill-timed comment or indecent joke, and the fires of war could potentially engulf the Council of Eight. It was far from ideal, yet Tancred had to admit that it was the best way for a lasting peace to be made. Foch was constantly behind the loop of latest news so long as he stayed in Paris, and his journey to London meant that he was leaving behind his power base in the French capital, something no true dictator could or ever would do. Surely this was further proof of Foch's security in his regime, and of the genuine French support for it? Indeed, the pros seemed to outweigh the cons, but Tancred had learned long ago not to rely on the simple presence of facts. Sometimes a good feeling was more telling than any other factor, and Tancred's gut was telling him that the next two months were bound to be the most taxing of his life. Perhaps that was why he dreaded leaving the relative safety of this car and stepping back out into the atmosphere of the conference. As the car stopped, it seemed as though fate itself whisked the two men out of their vehicle and towards the newly installed elevator, where they would surely journey to the top floor of the Annabay Hotel and enter into the room where the Council of Eight sat. In the last two weeks, but especially in the last week since Fitzwilliam, the Swiss man Kalender, and the Spaniard Antonio Mora had gone home, Tangred had cultivated an invaluable rapport with Foch, and in turn, Foch had revealed much about his character. There was much to like, especially in how the President Marshal had worked tirelessly, sometimes into the early hours of the morning, to rally France onto his side, to reason with his opponents, and to bridge the gap between old enemies. These efforts had brought Foch much closer to his people. In fact, part of his routine every day was to walk the streets of Paris each morning, for at least an hour. This process had helped him get a true feeling for the emotions and motives of the common man of France, Foch explained, and the common man of Paris seemed united on a single idea, revenge. The necessity in launching an invasion of Bolshevik Russia from Warsaw, under the guise of the Clemenceau Directive and bolstered by those Tiger Brigades of foreign soldiers, was a cross which Foch continued to carry. This mission would be high atop the list of Foch's aims, as would be the smoothing of relations with Premier Poincaré and Josef Pilsudski, two individuals who would be critically important to the proper functioning of the Clemenceau Directive. 
There were other agreements to discuss as well. The Pact of Cartagena, the Continental Defence Accord and the recent announcement of an Anglo-Russian alliance were all developments that would have to be placed in context. Foch had also begun to ride the wave of scepticism that seemed to be engulfing the League of Nations. This, for sure, would lead to a showdown with Woodrow Wilson, but reportedly Wilson was increasingly isolated at the conference and in Congress, so perhaps this didn't matter. In Tancred's mind, the potential unravelling of the US President's unreal vision meant new opportunities for practical, sensible arrangements that would stand the test of time. The elevator dinged as it reached the top floor. Perhaps my first act will be to persuade Monsieur Poincaré to host the Council of Eight on the ground floor, Foch exclaimed, an imitation of a smile lifting his moustache. Onwards they walked down the corridor, before Foch and Tancred arrived at their destination, a large oak door with a polished handle. On the door was stuck a plaque, hosted by the Council of Eight, invitation only, it said. Tangred felt himself taking a deep breath as Foch, unthinking, so it seemed, nonchalantly opened the door. Inside were people who could hardly be accused of being Foch's biggest fan, but it remained to be seen whether these people would be able to put aside these feelings, or whether these feelings would dominate the negotiations going forward. Allow me to welcome you, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, to this gathering of the foremost Allied leaders, before you sit the leaders of the United States, of Britain, of Japan, and now of France. We are eager indeed to begin today's sessions with you. The words had been spoken by Raymond Poincaré, and they certainly boded well, for there seemed to be an element of sincerity behind them. Then again, Poincaré was a career politician. Thank you, Monsieur Premier, Foch said. It is my great wish to acquire for France, and for the world, a lasting peace, which we can all be proud of. The affirmation of the five pillars of peace goes a long way towards achieving this end. Welcome, President Marshall, an enthusiastic Lloyd George said. It is indeed fantastic that we have moved past that sorry business from before. I trust you have enjoyed the company of Sir Alistair Tancred. Certainly, Prime Minister, Foch replied. Might I say that Britain is blessed indeed to have such a keen diplomatic mind backing it? I have found my time with Monsieur Tancred most illuminating. Tancred then spoke up. Well, gentlemen, I shall leave you to it. Nonsense, Sir Alistair, scoffed Woodrow Wilson all of a sudden. The architect should be permitted to see his sculpture take shape after designing its blueprints. There was something cold in the President's compliments. Was he aware of the movement against his blood league? René Massigli then weighed in. Gentlemen, allied and associated powers, I believe it is time to begin piecing together the terms of our peace treaty, which will shortly be handed to the Germans. Pending the approval of those present in the room, I would like to move. Suddenly the door burst open, and a grizzled Polish general loomed into view. It was Josef Pilsudski. President Marshall, I thought it was you. Pilsudski boomed. General, you are not due to be summoned for another hour, said Masigli in a small voice. Pilsudski completely ignored him. I could not wait to greet the hero of Poland and of France. It is good to see you, my friend, Pilsudski exclaimed. Foch shook Pilsudski's large, fleshy hand before saying to the room, 
Gentlemen, I understand there has been much confusion over the last fortnight regarding the state of treaties and of prior agreements. I wish to make clear, here and now, that while the conclusions produced in the German-Polish Borders Treaty and the Western Front Peace Treaty were in many respects adequate, much has changed since then. Above all, France is uncomfortable associating itself with the vision of that infamous world trader Pavel Lebova, whose authorship of the German-Polish Borders Treaty is well known. Since the creation of these treaties several months ago, in fact, so much has changed, a fact testified to by our new headquarters and by the new faces I see staring back at me. It seems that bilateral agreements have become increasingly important, evidenced by the Anglo-Russian alliance, which France welcomes, for it commits Great Britain to act in the Russian civil war, as France will do soon. I believe that next week, in fact, the last of the Tiger Brigades will have arrived in Warsaw and the Clemenceau Directive will be ready for implementation. In these circumstances, gentlemen, the invasion of Red Russia and the defeat of the Bolsheviks will begin. Yet there is understandable anxiety on the part of my friend, General Pilsudski, among others, that agreements made regarding Polish borders will now be up for renegotiation and dispute. To avoid such disconcerting developments, I propose now to guarantee the old terms of the German-Polish Borders Treaty and to enshrine them within the remit of the Continental Defence Accord, of which France and Poland play the premier part. There was silence for ten uncomfortable seconds before Poincaré spoke up. President Marshall, it is my hope that peace will be assured for the continent for generations to come, but I am somewhat perturbed at the unilateral way in which you have proceeded with forging new arrangements and treaties. I must confess that I was frequently surprised by directives sent by you from France to London. When my colleagues asked me of the latest news, I had no answer for them, and so I am content indeed to have you here, where I can ask you face to face about these latest developments and guarantee the constitutional integrity of our country. Foch bowed his head in response and nodded with apparent enthusiasm. It is my honour to cooperate with you and to serve the interests of France, Foch said. René Massigli then interjected. President Marshal Foch and Premier Poincaré, I believe we would all benefit from some clarification on these matters. For instance, what is the extent of the commitments and the scope of this Continental Defence Accord, which has caused so much anxiety in Germany and in the halls of this conference. Pilsudski then intervened. I believe I can provide some clarity as to this question. The Continental Defence Accord has been shrouded in undeserved controversy, largely due to the misplaced fears it aroused and the confusion it created. It is, first and foremost, an agreement to preserve peace and defence in European countries against forces of aggression, be they Bolshevik or from those of the vanquished central powers. At its core, it guarantees common defence between Poland and France, its most prominent members. The solid core of this accord had been bolstered in previous months by alternative arrangements surrounding arms deals and the provision of credits. Poland, as I'm sure you all know, gentlemen, is composed of a proud people, and we have longed for centuries to return to the concert of Europe where we belong. Previously, we were cruelly suppressed by our Prussian, Russian and Austrian neighbours, and this Continental Defence Accord ensures that such a trauma should never befall my countrymen again. President Marshal Foch, do you concur? Brave Pilsudski, Foch beamed. Your understanding and explanation of these agreements goes a long way towards encouraging peace throughout the continent and thus the world. 
It is France's keen desire to see Poland free, as our blessed emperor had once guaranteed, before his forward-thinking ideals were callously snuffed out by greed and aggression. Yet that Grand Duchy of Warsaw was nothing compared to the position in European affairs which Poland deserves and now enjoys. You will find the terms of the new Polish state in this latest treaty, copies of which I now present to you all. At that, large pieces of parchment were produced, with a map on one side and several terms on the other. Pilsudski was positively glowing with contentment. I'm sure you will find this latest treaty satisfactory, gentlemen, Pilsudski said. It provides for the creation of a Polish state that compromises no freedoms but guarantees peace. Speak to me about the future of the Baltic states, piped up a previously silent David Lloyd George. Are you suggesting that we ignore their rights to self-determination? Woodrow Wilson then interjected. These states are too small to support themselves, Prime Minister, and I believe that this arrangement, in fact, enshrines their autonomy and security under Poland and France's respective guarantee. Lloyd George made something of a face. The American president never did seem willing to concede self-determination ideas to the Baltics, probably because it made the region much messier. A strong Russia was also something that the president longed for, especially if it could play a role in the League of Nations. This would create a new commonwealth, René Massigli said. Are we certain it would be stable? It is surrounded by minorities and those of a less cultured disposition. Monsieur Massigli, Pilsudski said. From my experience, it takes a stronger, more cultured core to bring other less sophisticated peoples up to par. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth served this purpose before, and it can do so again. It would be the far more natural solution to the problem, Poincaré said. President Wilson's 14 points has enshrined within it a commitment to provide Poland access to the sea, Roosevelt added. This would present that solution without having to cut Germany in half, a terrible prospect considering the potential for another partition of Poland somewhere down the line. President Marshall, Makino Nabuwaki intervened from the corner of the table, causing everyone's heads to turn towards him. I notice that the treaty includes several provisions for life after the existence of Bolshevik Russia. That is correct, Your Excellency, Foch said. It is difficult to predict at this moment how that conflict will affect Poland or her neighbours, but we anticipate that the lands between Poland and Russia will require careful management. Poland can play a key role in this process, but it is pointless to speculate until the major threat to order in the region, that being the Bolsheviks, has been destroyed. I have received word that the Bolsheviks have recently captured Kiev in Ukraine, Pilsudski remarked. In previous months, the government in Weimar felt forced to intervene in the Baltic to eject Bolshevik movements there as well. I believe, therefore, gentlemen, that Poland's role in the region will be critically important indeed, and it is high time she harnessed her power and energy for the forces of good. Nabuwaki then intervened himself. It is my understanding that the Continental Defence Accord is reinforced by this arrangement. That is correct, Your Excellency, Pilsudski said, before adding with some purpose. There was great confusion in the past over the evolution of Poland's borders and the danger that the Polish question would be reopened with the veto of the old agreement that concerned Germany and Russia. Through this new arrangement, though, negotiated and finalised with the backing of France, the latest developments have been accounted for, and the troublesome question of legitimacy will be put to bed.
my late colleague Pavel Lobova was insuperably bound up with the creation of the previous treaty, and his terrible crimes meant that all his previous accomplishments have come under intense scrutiny. The last thing Poland or France needs is an uncertain future for Poland and Eastern Europe, and this arrangement brings that confusion to a determined halt. Poincaré then provided his two cents. General Pilsudski, my countrymen were deeply vexed at the pace of these negotiations, and President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's failure to consult me through their duration. I can now confirm my wholehearted support of these ventures. I do wish to urge that greater consultation between yourself and my offices be permitted to take place in the future. Of course, Monsieur Premier, Pilsudski said. Please forgive the earlier lapse in communication. These decisions were taken in the absence of much information and with the urgency of what seemed like the creeping power of Bolshevism. Now that these developments have been properly understood, it is my earnest hope that Poland and France can proceed. Very good, General, Poincaré said. This looks to be in order. Might I speak, gentlemen? Rene Massigli said, a sense of urgency entering his voice. I have heard it said that the League of Nations is currently under attack and that support for the premises dwindling. Can anyone provide clarity on this question now that we're all present in the same room or confirm or deny such rumours? The room went silent as the leaders of the interested states stared at the polished oak table where they sat. It seemed as though everyone knew a little bit about the rumour, but as to the truth of the issue, few could say. Was the League of Nations doomed? Was its covenant in need of revision? Or was there to be no basis to the rumours? Wilson was of the latter opinion. Gentlemen, he said, in the process of fulfilling the new order which is so earnestly desired by nations weak and strong, it is inevitable that some may be of the opinion that the promise of the League is too good to be true. I am sure a quick overview of Allied opinion here would put these rumours to rest. Lloyd George coughed and moved uncomfortably in his seat. The eyes of several men who knew better latched on to him, as did the eyes of Theodore Roosevelt. It was painfully evident that the American president was the least informed regarding the withdrawal of support for the League. René Massigli was shocked and horrified. Prime Minister, he said. Can you provide some clarity? Lloyd George sighed before rising to his feet. Gentlemen, there is no easy way to say this, or to deliver this news, but the time has indeed come to make some truths plain. He then looked longingly at Wilson. Forgive me, Mr. President, I had wished to wait a little longer before revealing these developments, but it seems that the genie has escaped the bottle. Out with it, David! Wilson exclaimed before, adding in a quiet voice, Please. Lloyd George took a deep breath before beginning. Very well, Mr. President, this is the situation. As you know, Britain has recently concluded an agreement with Spain and France for the defence of the Mediterranean, and additionally with the government of White Russia, represented by Admiral Alexander Koljak. These agreements commit Britain to a policy of defence and attack against the enemies of democracy and disturbers of the peace. After the conclusion of this great and terrible war, it is only right that great nations should work to defend their interests and guarantee their future against such horrendous experiences, such as another great war. To prevent another great war from erupting again, it is the firm belief of myself and many others in the government of Great Britain that freedom of action is essential. 
to tie our hands to an institution which is without precedent in history appears on the one hand well-intentioned and noble, but on the other hopelessly dangerous and impossible. Under the previous vision which you, Mr. President, presented to the world, the League of Nations would play a prominent role in international relations and would override the objections of local governments. In its current watered-down version, however, I am not convinced of the potency of the League or of its potential for halting conflicts. Since the prevention of conflict must be the guiding principle of the League, the failure to achieve this principle would be a critical failure that the reputation of the League, we believe, will not recover from. Instead of this new vision for the world, what my government and several others will be more comfortable with is a system of agreements and guarantees anchored on the firm friendship of Britain, France, and it is, my earnest hope, Mr. President, the United States. This three-way alliance, which won the war for Western civilization, must be the cornerstone of any post-war arrangement, and the confirmation of it would go a long way towards the maintenance of the peace. I understand, Mr. President, that there is some concern regarding the maintenance of this hypothetical alliance, as Congress has the power to reject any arrangements made between us here. Yet, I understand that the potential is also true of the League itself, and it is the grave fear of us present in this room that, upon creating your blessed League, the American participation which underpins that organisation will collapse following the conclusion of your presidency. What I propose is that a more straightforward alliance of us three aforementioned powers be solidified and enshrined within the final peace treaty. This alliance will be defensive in nature, of course, and will hopefully be more suitable to Congress and your opposition at home. If nothing else, Britain and France feel confident that they will be unable to prop up a league which has the danger of losing its guiding American hand. Perhaps in the future, pending many years of negotiation, wherein all will have the chance to build up relationships of trust, a League of Nations, as you imagine, will actually be possible. Now, however, the support base for such a league does not exist, and it is not within Britain's interest to commit itself, or its considerable resources, to supporting that which is not, in the long run, sustainable. It is my interest, it is my earnest wish that this news does not impact upon our friendship, Mr. President. Please understand that if there was some way for the League to see the light of day, we would support it. But as the situation stands, and the situation in Congress and all of Europe presents itself, the League seems, in the final analysis, to be a bridge too far. Wilson was silent. Roosevelt was silent. Foch was silent. Even Poincaré was silent. Those occasional awkward silence that visited the council room were on occasion useful for changing the subject, but this was impossible now. There was no changing the subject. The subject had crashed into the room, and there was no getting round it. Wilson removed his glasses, rubbed their rims with a small cloth, stood up with some purpose, and left the room without saying a word. Nabuwaki smiled and lit a cigarette. Lloyd George looked to each person in the room for reassurance that he had done the right thing by saying what everyone else wanted to say. His eyes locked with Tancred, who provided a weak smile. Gentlemen, Roosevelt said, if that is all, it seems we are finished here. Monsieur Venizelos, surely you accept that this act will increase the temperature in the region? Why, it has the potential to ruin the careful balance in the Far East altogether? Felix Kalander meant well, but it was impossible to appease the Greek Premier, now that the assent had been given for a Greek landing at Smyrna. 
This was the dream of all expat Greeks everywhere. It represented the fulfilment of all ethnic Greeks who lived in scattered settlements that hugged the coastline of Anatolia. 1.5 million, Venizelos insisted, lived around the region of Smyrna. Those that were not ethnic Greeks were Greeks in spirit. Kalender was not convinced, but Venizelos wasn't giving an inch. Monsieur Kalender, please do not presume to understand the situation in Greece's sphere of influence. Before Switzerland was a dot on the map, Greek people were establishing Western civilization as we know it. My people have the approval of the Allied Council. We are ready to proceed. It would be much easier if all present today accepted this turn of events. Kalender didn't let the uncharacteristic jab from the normally suave Venizelos phase him. Tempers were flaring at this point for all involved, it seems. If the Allies support the venture, then I am willing to provide my assent as well, but I urge your countrymen on the ground in Smyrna not to aggravate the delicate situation in Anatolia by committing tit-for-tat atrocities, tempting though it may be when faced with the Turkish beasts, Kalender said. Believe me, Monsieur Kalender, Venizelos replied, we waited too long to allow such careless behaviour to jeopardise Greek interests. Greek soldiers will be a model nation for the Turks that come under their jurisdiction, so much so that I believe any notions of an independent Turkey will evaporate quickly enough once they see how civilised men form governments. Yuan Bratianu, puffing out a large cloud of smoke, interjected. Speaking of civilised nations, my dear Greek friend, I believe it is time to speak of Transylvania and the character of the Magyar, which makes them uniquely unsuited to rule in a region where numerous nationalities live and work. In our experience, the Magyar works always to monopolise the advantages of his race, as seen in the partnership with the Habsburgs and the late dual monarchy. Vienna and Budapest, then, worked to undermine the interests of the Balkan peoples hand in hand, and there can be no guarantee that this partnership is at an end, even if the titles and deeds no longer apply. Friends and delegates, exclaimed Lady Nora Chalk from the other side of the room, before continuing, Please do not pay heed to my honourable Romanian friend and his cautions. Hungary is quite tolerant and stable, now that it has shorn itself of its old Habsburg appendages, which forced its people to cleave together for the sake of the common interest. We are interested only now in bringing all Hungarian people, all true Magyars, together in one state. Do think of self-determination when listening to Monsieur Bratiano's proposal, for he would suppose that the impossibly complex region of Transylvania be handed over in its entirety to Bucharest, despite having never come under Romanian control before. My lady, said Edward Benesch, the Czech foreign minister, a few seats north of Mrs. Chock, I heard it said recently that Hungary has been overtaken by a royalist Habsburg coup under the former emperor Charles of Austria. What say you in response to these rumours? What kind of government rules in Hungary? Can it be said to have removed its Habsburg appendages when the last Habsburg emperor rules now as king? The challenge was a difficult one to answer, but Lady Chalk did her best. Gentlemen, who rules in Budapest matters little now, but it must be made clear that Bolshevism has been defeated and the rule of law retains the respect of all Hungarian citizens. We are eager for a fair and near peace. We do not seek the spoils of war, nor do we agitate for great expanses of land. Hungary merely wants what is justly hers to request, came a Spanish-accented voice at the other end of the large oak table. 
Spain can respect that, much as she hopes the rest of Europe will respect her new arrangements with Britain and France. Is this how the Minor Council intends to do business going forward? Asked a familiar voice from the doorway. It was President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Evidently, he'd come straight from the recently adjourned Council of Eight meeting, which Wilson's abrupt exit had brought to a sudden end. All voices were hushed, and all heads turned to greet Foch, which was just how the President Marshal wanted it. Gentlemen, and lady, it has come to my attention that this arrangement may not be suitable for the creation of a proper and lasting peace, so long as you all insist on frittering from one discussion to the next without resolving anything. It is essential that you put aside some of your differences and work for the greater good. Is that what you did, President Marshall? A voice from the middle of the table asked. Fosh and others attempted to gauge who had said it, and their gaze fell to yet another familiar face. Signor Orlando, Fosh said, with a mixture of curiosity and caution. I had not expected to see you here. Orlando stood up for all to see, before clearing his throat for effect. Indeed, Marshal, I have been gone for some time, and yet I returned three days ago with the intention of clearing up the various rumours which had been spread about Italy and myself. They say I arrested all my political opposition, that Italian soldiers are landing in Serbia, in Libya, and at Anatolia. I can tell you now that Italy is at war with the poisonous forces of nationalism, which helped facilitate this terrible war, and it is high time that our European neighbours recognised this danger. A Polish voice then weighed in in perfect French. Signor Orlando, you likely do not know me, but I am Ignace Paderewski. As the leader of my Polish delegation, believe me when I tell you that I know how it feels to become the pariah of the conference. Many months ago, Poland was ostracised from the decision-making apparatus of the conference, to the detriment, I believe, of Polish interests and the common good. We are now making something of a comeback, but I fear for the peace of Europe if, once again, Another premier power, such as Italy, should become shackled to old rivalries and bitter memories. I urge you, Signor Orlando, to cooperate with your friends in this room, however painful that may be. I urge you to pull Italian forces out of the Balkans, so that the true danger, that of Bolshevik Russia, can be properly combated with a united front. Orlando stared daggers at the Polish leader, who refused to shrink from his gaze. Paderewski knew that Foch stood behind Poland, and that was what mattered, while Italy's adventure into the Balkans, militarily successful though it had been so far, had netted her few friends. I understand that Italy stands alone, gentlemen, Orlando said, before adding, I understand also that the Pact of Cartagena is directed against her interests. I must remind you why Italy entered this war, and the promises which Britain and France made. If their honour means nothing, Italy will be scorned and left without the fulfilment of their promises, a fate which seems unfortunately likely under the present circumstances. Therefore, you should not object when I tell you that Italy is only taking what is rightfully hers under these previous treaties, forged in 1915 and 1917. You might dispute their logic or suitableness, Marshal Foch, but you cannot dispute their authenticity. Italy must defend her interests, primarily against those in the new Kingdom of the South Slavs, an illegitimate organisation which was pulled together by the military force and threat exercised by the Serbian government. There is an unfortunate tendency to view the Serbs as the victims in all of this, yet they were the ones who launched a series of preemptive strikes against the Balkan microstates, 
in the name of an idea of unity which only they subscribe to. Since our intervention, Croatia, Slovenia and parts of Dalmatia have been liberated, as is right and proper under the terms of self-determination which President Wilson has loudly proclaimed. National governments in these states have emerged, opposed wholeheartedly to the suggestion that they should be forced into an unnatural marriage with Belgrade. Italy was helped to victory by these peoples, and now the front is stable and a ceasefire is in effect 24 miles from Belgrade. We welcome mediation from Swiss or other neutral spheres, but we reject completely the notion that Italy has launched a campaign of conquest, or that she deserves blame for the latest events. If you wish to confer with me on these subjects, I will not sit here and dishonour myself among these small nations of the world. Until I have been given back my seat on the Council of Eight, I shall wait in the comfort of my suite. Good day to you, gentlemen. Fosh rolled his eyes as Orlando sailed past him with a spring in his step. They needed more information on the ground in the Balkans before any decisions could be made, but what Orlando had told them at least made it plain that the Balkans had not fallen in totality under Rome's domination. Admittedly, the arrest of several political malcontents in Italy would go a long way towards stabilising Italian society and preserving Orlando's government, which was the best choice out of a series of bad ones, even Fosh had to admit, for the moment at least. Gentlemen, do not concern yourselves with the qualms of the Italian Premier, Fosh said. We are gathered here, I am sure, to discuss the recent developments in the Russian Civil War. Pray tell, dominions of the British Empire... What policies have you arrived at with respect to this theatre? Are you willing to provide volunteers to the Clemenceau Directive? Have you sent your own Tiger Brigades out as of yet? A distinguished-looking Indian man with a dark green turban and burgundy cloak rose from his chair. Fosh's eyes widened as the man began speaking in perfect English. President Marshall, good day to you and to all present. I represent the interests of India as the Prince of Bikaner. They call me Maharaja Ganja Singh, but I answer to Your Excellency, just as I answer to my people. There has been a lot of talk about the dangers of Bolshevism. Perhaps I am more qualified to talk about the dangers of imperialism and greed, but I will talk briefly about Bolshevism as well. It is clear that this ideology preys upon the misery of the desperate and destitute. My Australian peer noted on a previous occasion that it was critical to rebuild Russia, rather than merely reconquer its Bolshevik elements. With this in mind, I commit a brigade of 5,000 Indian volunteers, based around a trained corps of 1,000 medically qualified engineers and healers. These men should help rather than harm, but they are also equipped to fight. They are on the way to Warsaw as we speak. Fosh had to admit that he was impressed. By now he was sitting at the top of the table. Paul Mons, Belgian foreign minister, had once occupied this seat, but nobody had seen him in over a week. Imons' old colleague, generous Dinglebush, rose from his seat next, and Foch braced himself. Belgium has no tigers to spare, gentlemen, but we do have strong, brave men, eager to make this world safe from Bolshevism. I have been informed by His Majesty that Belgium will provide 1,000 engineers who will be happy to support the French thrust wherever they can. Foch nodded at the Belgian, impressed that nothing had gone wrong, apparently buoyed by the gesture of confidence. Dinglebush sat down with such force that the two back legs of his chair snapped, and for a surreal few seconds the Belgian seemed to hang in the air before tumbling backwards with a spectacular crash. A strange silence 
came over the room, before another individual, the Australian, David McKay, rose from his seat, saying, President Marshal Foch, we have not met before, but in your mind, I am best suited to command this expedition into Russia. I remain unconvinced of my suitability for this mission, and believe you would be the better candidate, but I am determined to help wherever I can. With me, I bring 5,000 veterans of the late war without much effort, with great expertise in artillery command. And yet, I must reiterate once again what I said last time, gentlemen. The Bolsheviks are our enemies only insofar as they are fanatical and unrepentant converts to that ruinous cause. But many more are simply desperate people who have lost everything, and with nothing to lose, they have turned to the creed of disruption and death. If we want to win this war, we must give these people something to fight for again. Our flag should not merely say death, destruction or revenge, but hope and opportunity and a chance to start again in a country unaffected by the horrors of war. It was the Great War that placed Russians in this position, her overextension, the eagerness of the Tsar to defeat the German menace and honour his obligations and so many other factors besides, provided the ideal environment for the virus of Bolshevism to thrive. This virus started out small, gentlemen, and it was not born in an environment of compassion and plenty, but of coldness and want. To fix Russia, we have to save Russia. To do otherwise means to fail in our task. We can defeat their soldiers, we can capture their cities, but to deliver the killer blow to Bolshevism, we have to do more. Are you, President Marshall, ready to do more than simply fight? This was quite a challenge. Help out the people whose ideology had killed Clemenceau? The entire expedition was couched in the language of revenge. Frenchmen didn't sign up for the mission to fix Russia, but to kill Bolsheviks. Of course, though, Foch recognised that in the aftermath, more would have to be done. You have my word, General McKay, Foch said. Russia will be fixed, and the destinies of all Europeans will be affixed to it. The Australian nodded and sat back down much more gingerly after bearing witness to Dinklebush's episode. While we are on the subject of Russia, President Marshall, I wish to speak for Canada if I may. Sir Robert Borden had the floor. As Canada's Premier, he was better placed than most to speak for the Canadian people. I believe it is fair to say that we wish the war was over. Indeed, we have not finished the Great War, and now the war against Bolshevism requires our attention. My honourable friend from Australia did not mention that we are bound to aid Russia according to the terms of the treaty recently signed between Great Britain and the white Russian government. This, I feel, is an important aspect of the story. It explains why we feel compelled to act in Russia in solidarity with the mother country. It would not be a stretch to say that this venture is a test of loyalty, in fact, to Britain and the government of Mr Lloyd George. I trust that in this test we will not be found wanting. I commit for my part a tiger brigade, some 5,000 strong, consisting of our bravest marines. Some of these men, you must understand, were veterans of the horrors of Passchendaele, yet they recognise that now their job is not over yet. We must honour them with a proper policy and determination to utilise their energy. It will not be in vain. Before another Dominion partner could speak, the previously silent Russian delegate, Dmitry Robotnik, rose from his chair towering over his peers in the room, even more so as he did so. Robotnik's message was short and sweet. Gentlemen, believe me when I say that your gestures of support for Russian democracy mean the world to me. When I first arrived in this conference with few friends, 
I was unsure how my mission to rid the country of Bolshevism would pan out. Now I know I have made the right choice, placing my trust in all of you. Russia owes you a debt which can never be repaid. A round of applause followed, which seemed to buoy the mood of those present. Louis Botha of South Africa rose from his chair. I wish to commend my peers on their efforts to liberate Russia. South Africa doubles its previous commitment. We will provide 5,000 volunteers as well for the fight. These are some of the most experienced soldiers, veterans of the Boer War. We fought against Britain then with a unique ferocity. Alongside the full vibrancy of other dominions, we will match this ferocity again in Russia. For Newfoundland, gentlemen, my colleague and I wish to say a few words. Arthur McCallville hadn't waited for Louis Botha to sat down, but the South African dutifully did so with a brief bow. Democracy and sovereignty, McCallville said, are two resources which it is so easy to take for granted, and which Russia now lacks. They must be returned to her. I know my cousins in the Dominions, and my ancestors in the mother country, will do what is right for Russia, and I wish to ensure that Newfoundland, though small in population, plays no small role in this fight. Previously, we promised 1,000 volunteers. I have since learned that double this have signed up. This is great news indeed, said Owen Lind, apparently on cue. We Dominions have made it plain that we stand by the forces of good against those of evil. We will stand together, and we will answer the challenge which Bolshevism presents. According to my own count, the Dominions have in this venture pledged 22,000 men in total, and all Dominions bring some element of expertise to the table. Indian medics, Boer commandos, Canadian engineers, Australian artillerymen, and now Marines from Newfoundland. It is a proud day for the Empire indeed, and I trust that you will put these men to good use, President Marshall, as our man, General McKay, leads them forward to victory. Foch bowed low once again. At 22,000 men, the Dominions had truly outdone themselves in enthusiasm. The Reds wouldn't know what hit them. Gentlemen, please, we must remain calm. It was a futile appeal, as Walter Cameron knew full well, but he had to try. He got up to open a window in Woodrow Wilson's increasingly stuffy penthouse apartment. He felt the eyes of Roosevelt on him the whole way there as he walked. As he walked, Bruce Pug interjected. Mr. President, we must face facts. The League does not have the backing of the British or the French. They seem more than willing to abandon their previous arrangements, as they have so many others, on the basis that so much has changed as to render the old agreements void. Roosevelt weighed in in support of Mr. Pug. My colleague makes good sense, dear Wilson. The unfortunate fact is that we are up against too much opposition here. The American president was slumped in his chair, a picture of misery, his glasses perched on his nose. He was constantly biting his lip and, on occasion, rubbing his temples. He had a crippling headache. In the room was the full American delegation, and the representatives from the German and Austrian delegations were also expected to arrive soon for a private audience. The American delegation was supposed to be preparing to receive them, but instead, discussion had turned to the earlier performance of the president in the Council of Eight, where Lloyd George had exclaimed Britain's 180 in policy towards the League, and Wilson had left the room shortly thereafter. There is no way to guarantee that Congress will accept the League, my friends, even if Lloyd George and President Marshall Foch 
do decide to approve of it. That was Edward House, who incurred the glares of Wilson for his efforts. These glares are becoming increasingly weak and ineffective, though. Wilson sighed loudly before exclaiming, All that work, all of it, gone because the Prime Minister has decided to change his mind. William Randolph Hearst then decided that the time was right to weigh in. The League is without support among my readership, Mr. President, Hearst said. They all worry that America will be dragged into another war between Europeans, or between colonial subject and master. They worry that their boys will be lost in the efforts to make the world a better place, and they all wonder why it should fall to America to fulfil this endless mission, for it will be endless. Mr. Hurst, Wilson nearly shouted, how do you imagine we will change human nature and its fondness for war? Hurst gulped, and Wilson added with no mercy, You don't know, do you? You're just a newspaper baron. You sell news, but I'm trying to sell peace. I thought this war had changed everything. I thought it would provide fertile ground for peaceful institutions like these to grow. Everyone at one point had declared their favour for the League idea, but now within a few weeks it seems too hard, so attention has been focused back to the national interest. You say the mission to enforce peace will be endless. What about the mission to actually fight wars? Men and war are two terrible bedfellows, two criminal companions who destroy civilization and progress wherever they tread. I cannot give up this fight to separate these two parties forever. Simply because sceptics imagine it will be difficult. I have been fighting difficult battles ever since I came into the office. I never imagined that opponents of peace will prove a more difficult battle than the war against the enemy, but perhaps I underestimated the resolve of my enemies, or perhaps I overestimated their spine. A stunned sense of surprise came over the room. This did not sound like the President Wilson they knew. Oliver Flanagan then piped up. Mr. President, surely you must know that in Harvard, peace organisations have sprung up that are wholly against the principles of the League. We do not need the League to preserve peace. We only need American steel, French determination and British ships. By tapping the energy resources of the old Ottoman lands, we could very easily guarantee peace without having to lift a finger. Wilson rubbed his temples. Flanagan had done it again. He had managed to mention Harvard and oil in his speech without even apparently trying. Joseph Zahn then spoke up. Germans are fearful indeed of the current encroachment of the victorious powers. American support of the Anglo-French proposal for an alliance would reassure them that the victorious allies have no intentions of threatening German interests ever again. Zahn was clued in enough to the opinions of expat Germans in the United States, so he knew what he was talking about when he spoke of German affairs. At that, there was a knock on the door, and four German figures walked into the room. They took the four seats which had been reserved for them. In their company was Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam, who was present to translate if they needed it. Johann Hoffmann, Minister-President of Bavaria, Paul von Leto Vorbeck of, well, supposedly Prussia, and now Philipp Scheidemann, the German Chancellor, all sat in a row. The wily Austrian Chancellor, Karl Renner, sat to their left, awaiting an opportunity of his own. Thank you for coming, gentlemen, Walter Cameron said, shaking each man's hand in turn. Paul von Leto Vorbeck rose to speak. Mr. President, I wished to thank you for helping to facilitate the ascendancy of my countrymen to the Minor Council. At long last, German and Austrian voices can be heard, and they will be accorded the respect they deserve. Wilson nodded in acknowledgement. 
It was all he could manage at that point. Mr. President, I will cut to the chase, exclaimed a raspy voice which Wilson had yet to hear. It was the new arrival, the German Chancellor Philip Scheidemann, who had been sent by President Ebert to get some proper information on Germany's prospects. Von Leto Vorbeck, it seemed, wasn't especially good at sending information home. Scheidemann said, Our previous treaty with Poland and with the West have both been voided, and Germans are now in desperate need of some reassurance. Now we hear that the League of Nations would no longer come into being. Is this true? Before he could answer, Johann Hoffmann interrupted him. Mr. President, Bavaria is independent thanks to your concessions, and for that we thank you. However, I wish to urge caution when dealing with Foch. I hear he intends to lord French power over my Bavaria. This simply will not do, and so we request some form of guarantee from your noble office to... Hoffman couldn't finish his sentence before he too was interrupted, this time by the Austrian Chancellor Karl Renner. Austria's borders are daily in jeopardy thanks to marauding Italian bands of soldiers, the war in the Balkans, adventurous Magyars, and even quietly plotting Czechs. Mr. President, the situation in Eastern Europe is certainly not settled. Austria urgently requires American help if it is to be sustained as an independent state. We request that you pressure the British to end the blockade of Germany, which continues to ruin us. Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam held up a hand for quiet. His translation services had not been needed after all. The German and Austrian figures, if they hadn't spoken in English, had simply blundered on in German. Wilson was blinking following the verbal onslaught, as if momentarily blinded by a bright light. Mr. President, I... Fitzwilliam had started talking, but then he stopped. Something was not right. The President's face had a strange slant to it. He was opening his mouth as though to speak, but no words were coming out. The President is having a stroke, shouted Edward House, who rushed over to Wilson's side. Fetch the physician, House yelled at Flanagan, who was still standing and near the door. Flanagan, fetch the physician now. Your President needs help. Wilson's eyes were strained and his speech was non-existent. The room was filled with the activity of a couple of men and the paralysed fear of the rest. The Austro-German delegates were frozen in horror. Scheidemann even had his hand over his mouth in shock. None could help from staring. Were they watching the physical collapse of the American president taking place before their eyes? Just as his life's work appeared to be disintegrating in his hands, it seemed as though the president's constitution had also disintegrated. House, Edward, Edward, Ed, the President's voice trailed away. I'm here, my friend, was all House could say. I'm here for you. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Oh boy, a whole lot of stuff went down here. And I've got something for you to vote on now. In the first scene, Pilsudski and Foch jointly presented the new borders of the Polish state to the delegates present in the Council of Eight. This document will be uploaded to the Patreon episode along with the script, and I'll also upload it to the Delegation Game group, so make sure you have a read and vote on it. Provided it passes, matters should be cleared up somewhat going forward, and hopefully after today, the French, Polish, British, and other problematic delegates at the conference will be able to see eye to eye. 
Certainly, the weather vane seems to have blown against the Germans, but especially the Bolsheviks, who next week will be facing the end result of these weeks of canvassing and campaigning as the Clemenceau Directive is finally launched against them and the invasion of Bolshevik Russia begins. All this and so much more is to come next week, but until then, dear delegates, my name is Zach, I'm your delegation master, and I'll be seeing you all next week. <laughs>